Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. So without further ado, I would like to welcome Anne's brother, Sam, to introduce Anne. He's an actor living and working here in Los Angeles. Sam. Thanks. Thank you, CJ. Um, hi, everyone. Thank you so much for coming, Anne, and our sister, Laura, and me, and all the pancakes who aren't here, all 8,000 siblings that aren't here, and our n- beautiful son, nephew, Jack, her son, and not m- my nephew, and Anne's nephew. Hello. Um, I am really touched that you're all here, and um, I... Uh, Anne was reminding me a couple days ago, the first time I went to one of her reading signings, which which was in our hometown of Romney, West Virginia, it was after her first uh, collection of short stories came out, two very wonderful reviews, including the New York Times, and she was doing a reading and signing in the, uh, what was like the multi-purpose room in the little library in our tiny hometown, and um, that was about 2002, I guess, maybe. So our father, uh, Joseph Samuel Pancake II, who is on his mildest day a lot um (laughs) she was seated at a table and our father positioned himself right beside her and um proceeded to take questions as well (laughs) unsolicited and speak about himself uh and and some nice things about Anne about how she is a spirit woman which is true she's very connected to the earth the land the the woods it's it's something I didn't get but she got my share and and then some which is an amazing and it really informs her beautiful beautiful writing so I was sitting way in the back of the room about 50 people of our hometown people hometown folks and I raised my hand to ask my sister the writer a legitimate question and our father said this is not about you Sam It's a tiny microcosm of our raisin and our daddy. Um, so I, ham bone that I am, I know this is not about me. But um, as I would be brutally reminded by my father if he were here, um, what a pity he's not. Just kidding. Um, but I'm delighted to brag on my big sister, Anne. She's only slightly old, just slightly older. Um, and I... I wish I could memorize all this stuff that she's done, um, but I'll just read some of the, the greatest hits of her amazing career. Um, her first novel, Strange As This Weather Has Been, was one of Kirkus Review's top 10 fiction books of the year. It won the 2007 Weatherford Prize and was a finalist for the 2008 Orion Book Award and the 2008 Washington State Book Award. Her collection of short stories, Giving Ground, won the Bakeless Award, and she has also received a Whiting Award and NEA Grant. She's a lot to follow if you're younger. She's a lot. He's a tough act to follow as a second child, um, an NEA grant, and a push cart prize. Um, these are huge in fiction, I am told. I'm, I know they are. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Big. Her fiction and essays have appeared in journals and anthologies like uh, Orion, The Georgia Review, Poets and Writers, and New Stories from the South, and The Year's Best. She also has won, she only gave me partial biography. There are so many more things, including, um, well, all her degrees, and she's lived all over the world. Uh, she's also got the Glasgow Prize and Creative Fellowships in the states of Washington, West Virginia, and Pennsylvania. And um, her... Uh, uh, whoops. And I'm just, okay, that's enough. Enough about me. Um, please welcome my amazingly talented, extraordinary sister, Ann Pancake. Thank you. Thank you, Sam, very, very much. I'm very, 
very moved and uh, very honored. And, and very honored that, you, that you guys uh, turned out. Thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate this, this, this very, uh, you're very generous with your time tonight. And, and, uh, and I want to uh, thank Skylight Books for having me. And they've been, they've been great to work with. And, um, and just want to put a plug in for them and independent booksellers in general who are especially so important to, um, to writers like me who are not, I'm not, I don't, I'm not from a big commercial press, so my publicity, you know, it's, it's, it's important for us to have these kinds of bookstores talking about our books and selling, selling our books. And remember, you can order online for many, and I'm sure Skylight too. You can, so if you want to think of Amazon, you go, go Skylight instead. So, um, uh, gosh, yeah, I've kind of, thank you very much, Sam. I'm kind of stunned by your introduction. And, uh, and I, and I do want to thank, um, Sam and Laura, so much for making the reading happen and, and for getting so many people of you, letting you guys know about it. And, and they're totally in charge of the refreshments, the beverages, and this. So, um, um, and I, as you can tell, I'm not as I'm not a public speaker like Sam. So I feel like that's a hard act to follow. But, um, <laughs> but um, I'm going to read from Me and My Daddy Listen to Bob Marley, and it's kind of hard to describe the book. It's a collection of short stories and novellas. Um, one way to talk about it is most of the stories are about the relationship between people and land, and often a lot of fraught relationship in contemporary times as so much is being lost in the land from and people's relationship to it. Um, all the stories are set at least partly in West Virginia. Um, some of them are more autobiographical than others. And tonight, I'm going to read from a more autobiographical one. I'm not going to read the whole story. I'm just going to read for about 20 minutes. Uh, so it's about half of this story. So forgive me, the ending is not a, like the best place to stop. But um, Sam's trained me on how to do... I've asked him for advice about how to, how to handle that. But... Um, the, uh, the story, let me give my little, I'll give a little summary so you'll know what it's a, it's about a 10 year old girl who keeps bumping up against a family secret whether she wants to or not. Her grandfather died in the house where she is now growing up and there are some mysteries around his death which are gradually revealed to her through a disabled alcoholic farmhand named Ham. <laughs> that is one thread of the story. There are others. As I say, this is based on our lives, and so Sam is a character named Sam in the story, and Laura is sort of a composite character with my other sister, you can just have a bad face, so she is Mavis, and, and, and then Jack wasn't around yet, so he's not, he's not in here, I'm sorry Jack, but, okay, so the story is called Mouse Skull, the story's called Mouse Skull, um, okay, I put my hand on it while shinning down a wall in the barn, fleeing my sister Mavis in a game of witch. And when I grab a side-running beam to slow my fall, my fingers graze it on a little ledge there. I nest the skull in my hand, drop the rest of the way down, throw up my face to make sure no brothers or sisters saw, but they're still shrieking in the haymow, and only Mickey, the biggest and wisest dog, watches me. I tuck my mouse skull in my jacket pocket, stoop run to a manger and wiggle in. There in the moldy dusk, I study it with my fingers, with my nose. The flesh has rotted down to dry, bald bone, but the mouse is new dead enough. It exhales a corpsey odor still, an odor home to me from all the creatures, tiny as mice, big as coons, who crawl into our house walls to die. I blow across it to unstink it some. Here are the kids rattling down the haymouse stairs, hide the skull deep in my jacket. 
I jump out of the manger empty-handed and still make them scream. An hour later, I'm in my bedroom, unscrewing the lid of the only perfume I own, a bronze liquid labeled 1929, as nostril-shocking as a chemical sap. (laughs) I cradle my mouth skull in my left palm while I daub it with a 1929-soaked cotton ball, whispering apologies as I do, and then I blow on it again, this time to make it dry. I mount it on a pillow at the head of my bed. It is the unbleached jello of fresh-killed antlers or grown-up teeth. As thin-boned as locust shell it looks, but when my brother Sam tackled me at the end of which, it did not crack. My skull flawless right down to its exquisite tiny fangs. I press my thumb, I press with my thumb the jagged place that used to wear the softness of nose. I peer into the bonery at the back where it dropped from its spine, a rough honeycomb that won't let my finger in, and suddenly I know exactly what to do. I swing off my bed and rummage through a dresser drawer. I find a long white shoestring with just a bit of grime. I snap the shoestring like a little whip and moisten the frayed end with my mouth then necklace my mouse skull through where its eyes used to be. On Monday, I decide to wear my necklace to school. And because there are five younger children to get ready, my mother either doesn't see it or doesn't care. (laughs) I am deliciously hopeful that the other fourth graders will notice its remarkableness. But desensitized to the unusual like my classmates are after four years of exposure to the intricate spiralings of ringwormed hair and Kevin with his shoebox-shaped run-over-as-a-toddler head and tiny toe-head Henry who speaks with the ravaged baritone of a drain-cleaner swallowing old man and the CPs and the Downs and the shiny house fire survivors. Only two people comment on my necklace. One is Ronnie Phillips, whose desk the teacher has recently pushed against mine so I can help him with his work, she says. Ronnie has fanged teeth in the manner of a 40-year-old man who, after seeing it all, has now put away his hard-living, wild-running days and mellowed to a gentle jadedness. (laughs) Ronnie glances at my necklace and says, Mouse that big, probably a rat. (laughs) The other is Michelle Livingstone who is not from here, who moved to West Virginia from Connecticut two years ago. She sees my necklace straight away. What's that? Who'd put it on a shoestring and wear it to school? You smell gross. (laughs) Our house has 21 rooms, some heated, some not, a few less indoors than out. There are rooms that leak rain and rooms that hold, rooms with windows that peer into other rooms, rooms up two stairs, rooms down three, rooms from the 1900s, room from the 1800s, two rooms from the 17s, a few rooms that comfort many that scare. (laughs) A basement with one room of coal, a pyramid of clinkers, and a squat cement furnace growing out of the ground. An attic I see only by standing in the yard and squinting up at the high dormered windows for a glimpse of the black snakes, Mrs. Dock says, raised their families in there. <laughs> Over top the kitchen, a room called the little study room where no one studies. <laughs> a rust-stained toilet, a rust-stained sink, a freckled aluminum pipe passing through from the old oil stove below. The ghosts prefer the second floor. 
For a long time, they were only my grandfather. And then Ham died too. Ham, who worked for your granddaddy, as my parents say, lived six miles upriver on our family farm in an unpainted cinder block house of foam in a blizzard of albino cats. <laughs> cats uncountable, unownable, unpettable. Although when we were four or five years old, old, old Sam and I tried, crept close to the house, froze so as not to be seen, crept close to the house, froze so as not to be seen, until we tripped some trigger line and the cat storm blew up. Cats mashed themselves under the foundation, bolted silent screaming into weed fields, warped through open window cracks and disintegrated under eaves and into culverts. Their ear insides, their toes, their tongues, all of that colored like ham. And my older cousins told me ham ate them, but I knew better than that. Those cats would never have submitted to being meals. The cat blizzard was a natural history, natural chapter in the snowy history of Ham, who, about the time I was born, passed out in a snowdrift while hitchy hiking home from the VFW and froze off the three smallest toes on his right foot. Ham never worked again and ever after had to lean on a three-toed cane and wear special shoes that looked hewn from a block of black rock. His real name was Raymond. We knew this from the collect calls from the county jail. And why do they call him Ham? Any new brother or sister would ask when old enough to wonder. And my father would weary say, because he likes Ham. <laughs> but I knew better than that too. Ham smaller in his hips than he was in his belly and chest. Him tapered like a ham standing on end. A whole country ham in its grayish sack propped upright on the tri-pronged aluminum cane. After my granddaddy's estate was settled, the farm fell under the charge of my aunt's husband who had an MBA. When I was eight, my granddaddy dead three years and ham unable to work for way longer than that. This uncle had the cinder block house bulldozed to the ground. Many a night, I lay in bed and visioned it, the cat bomb detonating the instant the dozer blade struck, the cat cloud suspended for long seconds in air before collapsing to flurry the valley, everyone landing on its feet. The original cats fructified and multiplied until within a year the whole countryside was a ghost with ham cats, them always just behind what you could see. In the meantime, ham moved in with some woman on the other side of town, and the jail calls kept coming. Why is Ham put in jail, some younger brother or sister would ask, and our father would explain again, drunk in public, they only keep him a few days. Now and again, I would be in the back seat of the station wagon when we picked Ham up and gave him a ride to the house of the woman on the other side of town. The whole way there, Ham would talk in his round, rivery voice, Ham should have been a lawyer the way that man can talk, my mother would say. And I kept an eye on the air because Ham, unlike everybody else I knew, sometimes talked about my granddaddy. Me and your dad, he'd sometimes say to my father, or your dad used to. And always, right before he did, there would be a change in the air. At first a warple, then it snapped cold bright. What a shame about your dad. He said that just one time and just one other time. Why do you think he dropped that nail down that pipe? 
Your dad was one of the kindest men I ever knew. Ham said that every other time. And "Uh uh-huh, my dad would say. His face shut tight as a jam dresser drawer. Then start start talking about something else. And the air dulled back. A year after the cats went refugee, it happened. We walked behind our barn, six miles north of the ham-flattened house, and there in the broom sedge crouched a nightmare white tom. Fur spiked like he was outlet-plugged, asylum escapee eyes, and most ghastly of all, a hairless pink tail. He invisible himself the moment after we saw. We can call him Snowball, my little sister said. I stared at Mavis's naivete. I both coveted it and was horrified at where it might end her up. (laughs) Jesus' voice is not in red in my New Living Word children's Bible. On its cover, a berobed Christ shepherding children in 1950s dungarees and dotted Swiss dresses. My New Living Word children's Bible was giving me three weeks before I found my mouth skull by my normal grandparents who live in another part of the state. The foreword in the Living Word Children's Bible recommends that children read first the Gospel of John. So I am reading first the Gospel of John. Every night before sleep, and it is beginning to dawn on me If I hadn't ever started this, I wouldn't have set myself up to disappoint God by stopping, so I cannot stop. I'm scripture trapped. (laughs) When I'm finished with my daily dose, the Old Testament has much better stories I know, but I dare not say this even in my head. I fold in the bookmark ribbon, close the pages, and turn to my nightstand. I place my living word children's Bible gingerly on top of a stack of books already there. At the bottom of this stack lies squashed the true book about paranormal activity I ordered from my weekly reader in a fit of self-sabotaging curiosity. (laughs) On its cover, a photograph of an actual ghost, a smoke woman descending curved stairs. I have a second Bible, the oldest book I own, a white King James the size and shape of a Band-Aid box, presented to me the week I was born with gilded pages and my name misspelled in that same gilt on the front. In this Bible, Jesus does speak in red. The King James Bible I've placed strategically in the little bit of space between the bottom of the book stack and the edge of the nightstand, making sure the King James does not touch the true ghost book, but is near enough to throw against it an invisible protective steam. (laughs) That done, I lift my necklace over my head. I hold the skull between finger and thumb to gaze in the sockets of its eyes and stroke its nose, rub its forehead the way my my horse books say horses like to be rubbed. I press it against my cheek and slip it under my nose, and just when it seems the corpsey reek might have all the way disappeared, it flares back through the perfume like roadkill in a thaw. <laughs> I rest my skull in the dead center of my new Living Word children's Bible, right on Jesus' chest. Nothing else can touch the top of that Bible. Nothing is allowed to obscure so much as a tuft of Galilean grass except the mouse skull. I reach over my head and pull the bolt tied to the string that runs through eyes on the ceiling to the bulb in the middle of the room. The second the light snaps dark, I plunge under the covers and jerk them over my head. 
Recently, it's occurred to me that such nightly oxygen deprivation might cause brain damage, but I figure if a turtle can survive it, I can too. I lie on my back as still as glass, willing my muscles, my bones to melt towards the mattress. If not a lump of me shows under the bedspread, not the slightest rise of me in the sheets, no ghosts will bother me because they won't know I'm here. Please, Lord, I pray in a whisper, make me flat. We get the Ouija board a few weeks before Christmas from Polly Sharon, the organist at our church. Every other week we visit her so our father can buy eggs and we can gape at the Civil War bullet holes in the kitchen door and the Methuselahian dog with a cannonball-sized knot in his side, possibly a Civil War artifact himself. <laughs> Polly Sharon loves us and gives us a present this year even though our father says, no, no, you don't have to do that, they don't need anything. When we unwrap the box at home, it has fewer parts than any board game we've played before, and I don't see how the pronunciation of it, which our mother can say, matches up with its letters. Distracted by the countdown to Christmas Day, only Sam gives the Ouija board any more attention until Mrs. Doc notices it. Mrs. Doc, who worked for your grandmother, now helps our mother once a week with the cleaning and will babysit us after dark. Before dark, it's me. Mrs. Doc lives down the railroad tracks, and her husband, Delvin, like Ham, drinks too much. Our mother doesn't drink at all. Our father drinks once or twice a year a wine called Christian Brothers, the word Christian evidently canceling out the sin. (laughs) To reach my earliest memory of Mrs. Doc, I must walk very far back in my head, and there I see her laboring up the stairs with a tray bearing a cereal bowl, a small pitcher of milk, and a box of special K. I asked my mother why, meaning why didn't Granddaddy eat downstairs with everybody else? My mother, misunderstanding, answered, Your Granddaddy thinks Special K will help him get better. (laughs) Mrs. Stock is a three-by-five-foot library of information our parents either haven't learned or don't believe. (laughs) The black man who lives under the bridge and will get us if we're bad. The rats that gnaw through the soft spots in babies' heads. The cats who want to suck out their breaths. Sugar tit is what she calls a pacifier, although she, ne- <laughs> although she never ever otherwise cusses. But the word tit is one we're forbidden to say, and we find sugar tit scandalous and hysterical. <laughs> Mrs. Doc acquaints us with hoop snakes that roll up and chase you through fields, and black racer snakes that chase you flat, and milk snakes that slither into barn stalls to suck the cows. Yes, titties. <laughs> she tells all this without a trace of melodrama. She tells it like she tells you you'll catch a cold if you wade the creek in January. She almost never laughs, has no entertainer in her, and no time to waste. The, The only game she will play is school, and only if she can be a student named Susie. All true, huh, Sam? It was Mrs. Doc alone in the house working for my grandmother when my granddaddy dropped the nail down the pipe. When Mrs. Doc sees the Ouija board, she says, matter of fact, that's a tool of the devil, Laney. Mrs. Doc just tells you how it is. You can take it or you can leave it. (laughs) Do your mom and daddy know you have that? And then she wobbles off to the kitchen. The second she shuts the door, I shove the Ouija board under all the other games in the closet. 
Later, I tell my mother what Mrs. Doc said. Do you really think Polly Sharon would give you something from the devil? I finger the shoestring around my neck and shake my head. But the question sounds like what my mother says when I call her in the middle of the night. It was just a bad dream, she says. Go back to sleep. And two or three times she's added, Even if your granddaddy was a ghost, do you really think he'd do anything to hurt you? The iron water in our house puts rust in our sinks, in our toilet bowls, rust in the shower, rust in our clothes. We drink rusty water, chump rusty ice cubes, eat potatoes, macaroni, and rice boiled in a rusty brew. Is it the iron water, I wonder, puts the copper hue in our blonde hair? Our, di- our dinner plates dull a mild orange, the same color as our underwear. Our father says it is good for us, that it builds up our blood. During a 4-H meeting at our house, Becky Wheelis goes to the bathroom, looks in the commode, and screams. While our father's at his meetings in Charleston, Sam and I must keep the coal furnace fed. In our house, ghosts rise, not fall, so the basement is less a scary place than a curious one. The place where the house starts to end and the outside to begin. A laboratory for experiments in science class bread mold. Our mother doesn't like us stoking the hopper alone, so Sam and I descend together to the boardwalk over the cold, watery floor, usually in our pajamas, because it's a right-before-bed-and-right-after-you-wake-up kind of job. We take turns stepping into our father's enormous rubber overshoes, then wading puddles to the coal bin, choking up on the shovel handle and scooping a load. This is where we are a month after Christmas, when Sam tells me what he's going to do. No, I command, you can't, you can't. Sam heaves a shovel full over the hopper rim, waits until the scattle sound ends. Yeah, nonchalant, resigned, melodramatic, Sam can emanate all three at the same time. (laughs) I'm going to. He hands the shovel to me. It was ordering I tried last time, so this time I switched to beg. Please, Sam, please, please don't. I've already made up my mind. He walks out of the overshoes, pivots regally, and in his puff and stuff pajamas, retire up the wooden stairs. That afternoon, I don't have to go in there. No one sent me after anything. Usually I dare not enter even the room we must pass through to get to the little study room. But today I cut my mouse skull in my hand, turn the knob, and step down in. The little study room is unheated but brilliant. Winter sun, dazzling moats, a sink and a toilet along one wall from the days I've been told when a servant stayed here. The floor tilts a little from every corner, all of it running down to a slight center sag. I stand against the wall on an uphill edge and I look around at the clutter of the roll-top desk that gives the little study its name, the joint of pipe running up from the old oil stove in the kitchen below, the spider dust, the insect husks, the fly crusts over every place the room lies flat. Then I brace for terror. I wait until I realize that I am less scared than separated, my eyes not touching my mind, my heart not touching my guts, not touching my legs and arms, my iron-thickened blood standing still, 
Nothing touching nothing, so there is no channel for the scared to move through. I already know from Aaron's past that there is no box of bullets, no box of nails. There is rust in the toilet, rust in the sink, but no rust in the sag of that varnishless floor. Okay, I'm going to stop there. That's not the end of the story, but but thank you very much. And I think, CJ, I'm going to take some questions. Yeah, I'll be happy to take any questions you have about the book or about writing or anything you'd like to ask. How do you work? Like, what's your daily... Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support and enjoy. Um, I, I get up about 6.30 and get some caffeine in me and start working right away. If I don't start working, as, I try to work as close to when I've been asleep as possible, I think because it's easier, easier for me to channel my unconscious at that time. If I, if I do anything else like work on student work and start using my intellect, then I'm kind of shot for the rest of the day. So, so I try to do it. And also if I do anything else, I'll procrastinate for the writing. So I do it as soon as I get up. And I can only write for at most three or four hours before I get depleted. So that's, that's kind of how I do that. Yeah, yeah. 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 We were talking before we came in about the um, how worrisome it is to write about people that are real, and I wondered how your family felt about. Well, um. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for the most part, my family has been very supportive, although there's been other autobiographical stories. Um, this one I checked was Sam read this and gave me the okay and also the okay to use his, his name instead of me changing the name. Um, and I've also written an essay about Sam and me, and he also gave me the okay on that. Um, I've written a fair amount about the father that Sam described in the introduction. He is so peculiar that he finds it flattering regardless of how he's represented. <laughs> so he... He hasn't been a problem. Um, this story actually, the the cover, the title story is based on our brother who, as one of the stories says, has a few problems. And so this is the first time that I haven't actually, I feel a little worried about um, the reaction, but uh, it's kind of a long story, but I'm not terribly, uh, I'm, I think I, I, it took me a long time to decide whether to, to include the story or not, and I finally decided that I would include it for a number of reasons. So, so, so far so good, but we'll see what happens with this one. Yeah. Do you want, do you, there's a novella in here called Sugar's Up, which is entirely about our dad. Yeah, so. It's what? And his madness. And his madness, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With this particular book, um, it's partially autobiographical and then partially not. Yeah. Um, what made you decide that that would be a, a good format? Well, I... I my my natural inclination is always to fiction, so um, and if and I do write some nonfiction or in memoir pieces, but I usually feel restricted and I and I sort of tend to go and start making stuff up anyway to make it a better story. So, so. Um, so I and I don't write. I don't deliberately write. I usually don't deliberately write anything. So it usually comes from uh, 
intuitive, uh, really sounds or images usually first. So it's not like I'm making a decision, this is going to be a fiction piece or a non-fiction piece about such and such topic. So I usually, uh, when it hits, I try to copy down as much as I can of the sound or the imagery, and then I have to work and try to find the story within it. So it wasn't really a conscious decision, um, but, I think if the, but I think it is much harder for me to stick to the truth and, and to, write, to write straight memoir. So yeah. But, but this one's pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really lucky. It, you know, I, when I first started publishing, a lot of editors at journals would want to take out the dialect. And my fiction would be eviscerated if the dialect went out of it. I mean, it's completely driven that. I work by hearing sounds, and they're usually the sounds of people, back, how they speak back home. So, so that was a problem early on. And um, part of the reason my novel, I couldn't find a commercial publisher, was because there's so much dialect in it. But it has to be set in southern West Virginia. It's about my mountaintop removal strip mining. It's based on interviews. It's not like I'm going to write in standard English. But I found... Um, so I found but but this, my publisher for, for both of these books is Counterpoint in Berkeley, and they're more of a, a medium-sized publisher, and they've been amazing, because they just let me do what I need to do. And on, on this novel, copy editor changed all the dialect, every single page. And I told the publisher, Jack Shoemaker, you know, this, I, I, this can't happen. He said, oh yeah, go back and change it all back. So, and then on this book, on the new book, they actually found me an editor in Pittsburgh who'd lived in West Virginia, and uh, did a beautiful job. So, uh, so yeah, at this point, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate to have them, and they, they understand what I'm up to, and yeah, so they've been good. They, they're mostly hands-off, to be honest with you, so yeah. 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 Where do you live now? Yeah, I live in Seattle. So do you write about that? Well, it's a problem. I'd like to write about that. I've tried... When I... When I lived in West Virginia, I thought there was, when I was a kid, we, all we wanted to do was get out. We didn't think there was anything there that we, to write about. Or, so we did, and I, and I went overseas as soon as I finished at Western University because I thought I'd find great material, which I, well, there was great material. I taught in Japan and Thailand and American Samoa. And, um, however, when I tried to write about those places, it usually come across as voyeuristic. I didn't have any heart connection or any real connection. So here I am, you know, how many years later, that was in, uh, and I'm still writing about West Virginia. There is a story in here that's partly set in Seattle. I don't think it's a totally successful story. Um, so, <laughs> only, only one of many. Of the, um, so, I would I would like to be able to write more about Seattle. Uh, and but unfortunately, it, I'm still having problems with that. It, it's still I still go back and to this to stuff from West Virginia. Partly because West Virginia is a fascinating place and it's a very very fraught place. And so there's a, we have great love and hate for it. So that is great energy for art. You know. So yeah. Yeah. Do you have a feeling for all the fiction that's been coming out and been popularized about areas like West Virginia, Ohio, that sort of stuff, that is like hyper violent? Yeah. Yeah. Long rations all the way, Paul. Yeah. And that kind of stuff. And it's, it's yeah. great, but I'm wondering yeah. if you have a feeling because it doesn't sound like from this <laughs> that's showing up. Well, I do, yeah. I could go. Um. <laughs> Uh, especially Donald Ray Pollock is yeah is very violent, and I think um, it's it's kind of problematic because of course you know we've been stereotyped as a violent lawless culture f- since the get go, which is in the late eighteen hundreds during the local color movement, and um, and there, you know there, there's certainly violent places there and lawless places there, but to represent it entirely that way, uh, and, and Ron Rash is more I think more measured in his in his the way he handles it, but um, I think that one of the reasons that the region is so heavily exploited is because of the way it's represented as, as, as uh, 
and, you know, people are, are trash and people are worthless there to, to, relative to a lot of other parts of the country. And I think it does have political ramifications. So, um, so uh, I, and I haven't read a lot of his stuff. I've just read some. So I try really hard to complicate any kind of uh, expectation about the region that, that people have. It is harder... Um, I've been really fortunate, but I have other friends. It's easier to publish a book about Appalachia if you can confirm, conform to the conventions that the publishing industry expects, which they think the reader expects. For that reason, a lot of stuff written about Appalachia is written by people who aren't from Appalachia because they understand the conventions better than we do because um, we, you know, we're, we're writing from a different perspective. So it's, it's really, yeah, it's very complicated, and I think about it a lot. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. Yeah. What are you working on now? Well, I'm trying to. I don't really know. I'm, I'm pulling together a lot of notes for for for. It's going to be a piece that's um, more environmentally focused, like the novel is, and I don't know if it's going to be nonfiction or fiction. So I'm just have I'm just kind of organizing notes I have from journals and stuff. Oh, yeah. 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 Anything else? Oh yes. Uh huh. Sam talked a little bit about how nature and yeah. the environment forms you, and you mentioned a little bit about it yourself, but I was curious uh, if you could be able to expand on that a little bit, like what your relationship is. Well, um, hmm. I think one of the reasons I can't write about Seattle is because I don't feel the connection to the land that I feel to West Virginia, and um, usually the things I write are, are rooted in a very specific location. Um, this, of course, is in the house where we grew up, but it's more often outdoors, and usually the, the, I, uh, there's, there's often, if I'm walking in a specific location, I'll get the sound of a story, and that will be become because I'm outside in that place. Does that make any sense? Yes, I think it's also that your childhood was spent there. Yeah. 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 So. Um, so I, yeah, so I feel that, that that from the from the root, the stories are really grounded in in, in land. I mean, not just place, but in the earth and, and the, the land, whether whether I really want it to or not. And that's one reason. And see, I love the land in Seattle, but I don't have that childhood connection to it. I don't hear it like I hear it back home. Um, so then, so the novel. I didn't really plan to even write this, but I was helping my sister Catherine make a documentary film about mountaintop removal, strip mining, and um, and I felt very passionate about the about the you know the issue, and uh, and then as we interviewed people, I started hearing the voices in my head of the of, especially kids that we interviewed, and then I started writing the novel. So so that so that's and it's explicitly environmental more so than this book. There are a couple of stories in this book. That there's one about hydrofracking, and there's one about mountaintop removal. But, yeah. Um, Yes, Hillary. Um, do, you, do you feel that your writing is propelled in part by wanting to give voice to the voiceless? Well, um... Does that grow more out of the environmental connection? Wow. I think, I think giving voice to the voiceless, I, um... That's a little bit problematic for me. Uh... You're right. I mean, I, I, I can't, we grew up middle class in West Virginia, so we come from a more privileged position, and we grew up in a, the poorest state in the country. And so, I do feel a responsibility um, to take advantage of the advantages that I had to to advocate for it. Um, but uh, I, I think to talk about the voiceless gives them less credit than than, uh, uh, than I'd like to. But uh, so, I think it is more land driven. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, living so far from the region now, does it change your perspective on it when you're writing about it? Yeah. 
Um, I think I couldn't have written about it at all if I hadn't gotten pretty far away. Because, I, like I said, we didn't know that there was anything interesting there. It was just boring. Um, so that so the distance definitely definitely helps in that way, and also all the uh, opportunities I've had to learn other things that help my writing that aren't directly related. Um, at this point, I've been away from it so long, I worry about not hearing the voices enough. As, in addition to that, a lot of the younger generations aren't even speaking with accent and dialect anymore. So that so it really is vanishing. So there are pros and cons to being at the distance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One more question. Yeah. I think you mentioned that you teach. I teach in a low residency MFA at Pacific Lutheran University, so that's where I teach. And then I teach private students, so I just try to cobble together whatever I can. But yeah, I teach it up in Tacoma, Washington, at Pacific Lutheran University. Yeah, and it's, and it's mostly fiction that I teach. Yeah. Oh. Okay, thank you all very, very much for coming and, and being such a good audience. I'm very honored that you came. And, and, uh... You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.